Welcome to Drop Everything podcast number 30. That's right, we've hit the big 3-0. And we have a very special guest for this podcast. His name is Sean Gandini, the founder of the Gandini Juggling Project. But before we get to our interview, let's thank our sponsors, like we do at the beginning of every podcast, starting with the IJA. Who is the IJA? Who are the IJA? You're probably saying is maybe better English than who is the IJA. Because the IJA is a group. They're a group of fantastic jugglers who get together to sponsor and support the art of juggling through their uh, online presence and through their yearly festivals. This year they're having a festival in El Paso, Texas in July, and I will be a special guest along with Emil Dahl, uh, the Kamikaze Fireflies, Team Rootberry, Pete Irish, and so many more. So plan your vacation now to come out to the IGA Festival in El Paso, Texas. Our other sponsor is me, Dan Holzman, who I'm also the host, but I have a coaching website called braindrizzles.com. And on this website, I work with performers, mostly jugglers, but also magicians and ventriloquists, any kind of variety act, who wants to improve their variety act by adding more comedy, and are also looking for some career motivation, some career mentorship, and just some advice on how to have the kind of career that, thankfully, I've enjoyed over the last 35 years. That's braindrizzles.com for my personal coaching website. All right, we've thanked the IJA. We've thanked me, Dan Holzman. Now let's get on to the podcast where I talk with the one and only Sean Gandini. Welcome to the Drop Everything Podcast, one of the most influential jugglers of the past 20, 30 years. A big welcome to Sean Gandini. Hello, Sean. Hi, Dan. Lovely to talk to you. Oh, this is going to be a real pleasure because when I look at juggling, I think there's only a few people who have kind of bent it to their will, who have sort of done what they want to do with juggling. And you're certainly a trailblazer who has his own individual path. Well, that's a, a nice way of thinking of it. That's, that's nice of you to say so. Well, I always look at like, if you look at like the three G's of, of juggling, I'm probably the only one who says that, would be like Jay Gilligan is a fellow who's had his own path. Mm-hmm. Jason Garfield, in his way, has had his own path. And Sean Gandini. <laughs> that's an interesting thought as well. <laughs> well, so many jugglers, they'll, they'll put an act together and they'll go down that route of here's my act and here's the places I work. And they might even have just one project they do their whole careers. Like Cremo, his act is basically his act from beginning to end. And you've had a multitude of, of different creative projects. Yes. I mean, I guess it's just, I, 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 think, I think of juggling as a little bit like writing. So, so in a way, you can do whatever you want with it. I've never thought that it had to be used in a specific way. I've always liked the idea that it could be used in many different ways ways but in a way going back to what you were saying about Cremor I I find it quite fantastic that he can find his happiness in that seven minutes and in a way I'm jealous if you could find your joy just making one thing I was talking to a friend of mine uh, Glenn Singer who does an act where he rides in kind of a puppet horse Mm -hmm. and his act is very stable and his thing was he (laughs) wanted the structure so solid that he could find the little moments that were, that were interesting to him, the little moments that he could change and, and go off this very strong base. So maybe Crema does the same thing. I, I guess one, perhaps, yeah. I, I mean, to me, I completely don't understand it because to me, it's as if somebody gave you a piano and said, play one song. So to me, 
it's somebody if somebody gives me a piano and I learn to play it, I'd want to play all kinds of different styles of music and see it, there's just so many beautiful possibilities. It's it's such a rich, undervalued art form that I, I couldn't imagine not exploring those possibilities. Yeah, for me, it's always been, and this is sort of as I come to sort of the later part of my career, at a point it got to be like with our act, it was like, here's our piece of art. Now you look at it. Okay, now you look at it. Okay, now you look at it. Take it that same picture. I understand that as well. And we have, we have certain things which we've played a lot of times. And there is a, a joy and a delight in finding the finer detail of something. And I, and I understand and respect that a lot. I guess one just has different yearnings or needs as an artist or as a whatever it is that one is. A kind of, I guess for me, it's, uh, or for us, it's, it's a yearning for promiscuous collaboration and making, the urge to make things. Yeah. Yeah, for me, I think of juggling as like a template, like a skill that I can express myself creatively through. But as a comedy juggler, it's sort of a limited palette artistically because you have to, please the audience in maybe a way that's a lot more easily digestible than some more of your deeper pieces of art. Yes, I see what you're saying. I mean, I suppose if you have the restriction that you need to make people laugh, which I guess we are fortunate or unfortunate not to have had, I can see, yes, it, it, I guess it's just a different way of going. I mean, I find, I find chatting to you about juggling quite fascinating. And we were talking about this before, the, before we started the podcast, because we both are quite passionate about juggling. And in a way, we are at such magnificently opposite ends of the spectrum, although maybe it's a little bit like this curved space stuff that, that the opposite ends of the spectrum, maybe they meet up on the other side. And maybe it is just the same thing. Well, I think it's our background because... I think for you, and obviously correct me if I'm wrong, you kind of build an audience that comes to see you and they kind of know what to expect and you're in a space that allows this kind of experimentation. When we started doing like opening acts, you had a certain role. The, the audience was there to see another performer and you had to immediately win them over. You had, to, you had to always keep their interest. You had to build towards a certain kind of warming up the crowd feeling and then get off. So there wasn't much time yes. to explore. I think there's, there's most definitely a, a context in a way that I think what you're saying is absolutely right, that you're going into an existing market which expects the performer to, to deliver a certain kind of thing, which actually is not easy at all to do well. And we are, are working in a circuit where I guess an audience is coming and thinking, what am I going to see? Am I going to see? But then, gosh, we've been doing this for quite a long time and we've done a little bit of the world you describe as well. Well, you have to, right? Because at a certain point, it is a, it is a profession. Absolutely. And, and to be honest with you, for me, it goes back to the thing I was saying of, of using it in different ways. So I, I love the idea of being able to put together something that was spectacular or something that was funny or something that's experimental or something. I don't, I would like it not to be restricted to one way like I say, I do very much think that juggling is a blank canvas and one could do whatever one wants with it. I wouldn't say it's easy in, in any of those areas. I, it's easy once one's made something that's successfully funny or something that's successfully spectacular or experimental, whatever it is, in retrospect, to look back and go, oh, yeah, that, that's how it works. But if I was starting out and had to make something now, it's quite a daunting prospect. Yeah, I always look at myself as a commercial artist. 
So those two words have always gone together. Is there something that you kind of use to sum up your approach? Gosh, I don't know. I mean, bizarrely, <laughs> I, I don't know if we're commercial. I'm, I'm sure you would think that we're not commercial. But ironically, for example, our piece smashed. We, we just did the 500th Whoa. show, for, which is a one-hour piece. And, and, and I wonder, maybe apart from the Flying K's, how many other juggling groups have toured a one-hour piece that many times? I, I wonder if one needs to go back to the olden days of juggling. I mean, I'd, I'd be curious to know how many, how many shows Rastelli did or how many shows Cinchiavelli did. I always mention, I think I mentioned this before on another podcast, but I always thought that the early death of Rastelli really hurt juggling even to this day because there was never this sort of tradition of juggling being its own show. Mm-hmm. And if he had lived and been able to popularize like Houdini, Oh, Rastelli's coming to town. Yeah, that's very true. And maybe that would have opened up that sort of genre. I mean, in, in Europe, with what they call the new circus movement, one, one of the big things about new circus is the idea that you could go and see a show that is one of the circus disciplines. So whether it's juggling or whether it's aerials or acrobatics. Uh, and I do think in that respect, there's a, an enormous difference between the USA and uh, the European touring scene in that Europe and France particularly does have a circuit where you can turn up in a small village and do a one-hour experimental juggling show and the bus driver will say to you, oh, that's interesting, it reminds me of this other show and then I saw this other show which was a little bit more this or more that. So there's an extraordinary circus culture which I think is unique, really. Yeah, here in America we have more like the performing arts series you're kind of lumped in with sort of the family subscription. Yes. So if you come, you're like the Gizmo guys I know have toured for their own show for quite a long time. Laser Vaudeville toured for quite a long yep. time. Yeah. But it's always sort of billed as family entertainment. Well, well, it, I guess it's also, I mean, one of the things we did originally and we still do is to hijack other circuits. So, for example, to hijack the dance circuit or the, because I'm sure there's a big, say, contemporary dance or ballet touring circuit in the States. And, and I imagine somebody like Michael Motion has toured one-hour shows to, on those kind of circuits. He's very, he's very uh, enigmatic, if I'm using that word? Enigmatic. Enigmatic, thank you very much, enigmatic <laughs> figure, because he's, in my mind, sort of a dropped off the map at one place. He's, he's come back recently with a, with a lecture. Yep. But as far as a touring artist, it didn't ever seem like he capitalized on his, his really initial burst of MacArthur Grant. Yeah, yeah. And it, I know he toured a piece for a while and then, uh, well, I mean, and it could be, there's an interesting analysis of that to be done, which is, I am sure if Michael Motion had done his work in France at the same time, he would have uh, a whole institution named after him now and he would tour and sell out every little theatre in France. I think that cultural difference between our two countries is, is rather gigantic. And in a way, the, the cultural environment that you're working in does define the kind of work you do. I mean, a lot of the jugglers that are coming out of the circus schools in Europe at the moment, for better or for worse, will go towards uh, what probably the USA market would consider very artistic work. But because there's a market for it in Europe, that's what they think they should be producing. Whereas I imagine in the USA, if you want to make a living, 
unless you're visionary and can find an alternative market, you do need to conform to, to a certain family entertainment uh, model. Yeah, I always say that the, the comedy juggler is king, that the, the talker, <laughs> because they really want a lot of times of 45 to 60 minutes, especially like on the cruise ships, even though there are a couple of yeah. acts that can pull off a silent performance. I think Michael Menez is one of them. But there's just more opportunities for the talkers out here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if I hear you speak about that world, it's a world I have a lot of affection for, but I don't, when I think of what we make, those markets and that world doesn't even come into my consideration. And maybe it's to do with the fact, I think I've always thought of it as a form of dance or a form of theater. So, and right from the beginning, and so the places where the work would be produced or shown would be places that show dance or theater. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, no, because like we came up, my first venues was the Renaissance Fair. Like I was yeah. aware of juggling and then it was a hobby. But my first working environment as opposed to, a, I started at an amusement park for like three months one summer when I was 17. But the first time I really felt like I was working on a, in a particular path or journey was when me and Barry started doing Renaissance Fairs. Mm -hmm. That's a very past-the-hat, talking, heavy environment. Yeah. Well, I think a lot, a lot of the American jugglers I've met, I know the Flying Ks come from that world. Mm -hmm. And I think it seems to be a formative place for, for a lot of successful American jugglers. Again, I don't know if the USA has had the kind of circus school revolution that Europe has had with this where a lot of the jugglers who are, who are coming out and starting to work now have come through this training, which is different from our generations, which didn't have that infrastructure. No, they all leave. They go to Canada or they go like <laughs> where Wes uh, yes. studied with Jay. Yeah, in Stockholm. Yeah. And well, it makes sense until, I mean, in a way, it's a shame that the USA has less of this. I've heard that if Donald Trump gets in, one of the things on his agenda is a massive cultural revamp and an opening of many circus schools. That was comedy. Well, when you think of Donald Trump, the first thing that comes is artistic vision. Yeah, <laughs> That's absolutely. Like my first absolutely. feeling when... Yeah, no, no, absolutely. The, actually, it's more of a queasy <laughs> sense of uh, unease, but, well, uh, we won't go down that route. about politics. No, 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 no. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, there's a, Maybe we, I have a few juggling friends who are of the school of the Donald Trump, but the majority of the people I know are, are Bernie Sanders followers and supporters. I'd like to have a conversation with somebody who's pro-Trump because I don't completely understand it, but let's not talk about politics. We'll talk about politics offline. Well, okay. Well, let's go back to the beginning then. You talked a little bit about the beginnings and something I never knew about you was that you were born in, in Havana. You grew up in Havana. Yeah, I wasn't born, but I grew up in Havana. Yeah, I, my parents were, were communists in the late 60s. And in their quest to find an alternative life, they moved to Havana. So I grew up there. And I, I grew up seeing a lot of Soviet circus. And I remember distinctly a juggler juggling six rings on a, on a sink pattern. And in some way, it fed something at the back of my mind. Uh, when I was a kid, I was really into doing magic and magic tricks. And I did a kind of classic journey of going from magic into juggling. And then ironically, one of the jugglers that got me really inspired by juggling was Sergei Ignatov later. So I have a weird connection to this notion of Soviet Russian juggling. But yes, I did grow up in Havana. That's funny because I, I sort of went from the magic to juggling route as myself. 
I thought <laughs> with magic, you had to show somebody. Like it was something you needed yes. to do for someone else. Where juggling, I could do by myself in the backyard, and it was fascinating for hours. And magic, I just felt like without an audience, it didn't exist. Do you know, I have something similar but reverse, which is I used to love the manipulative side of magic. And then I realized I would hide all my skill. And I think one of the things that appealed to me when I first got into juggling was the idea that you show the skill as opposed to in magic. So many of the good manipulators or the close-up people hide their skill. But they're similar and different in so many ways. I mean, so many people oscillate between both. But I guess the journey from from magic into juggling is more common than from juggling into magic. I don't know. It'd be interesting to, yeah. Then, then what was the journey from like being exposed to juggling and then ending up like being a street performer in Covent Garden? How did, how did it go, that make that transition? I, well, I, I was studying. I studied linguistics for a while in France and I had this yearning for something else and I... And I was visiting London and I saw a street show and I saw somebody juggling five balls and I went, oh, this would just be great. And then, so for two or three years, I did street shows and, and I did quite weird, initially quite weird street shows. I used to do street shows with kind of classical music in the background. And I think I, I did a version, a very uh, easy version of, of Sergei Ignatov's routine. And, and then around that time, the gym I used to practice with had a little bit of the London new dance scene happening. And this very nice man called Scott Clark said to me, come and do dance class. And kind of going to his class and meeting some of the dance and seeing that aesthetic changed my perception of things. And I thought, gosh, what if one applied all of these ideas to juggling? And it was a bit of um, a revelation. And was that sort of the birth of the, the Gandini juggling? Well, then I, I met Catty, and, and in a way, uh, even though it's named after me, the Gandini thing, it is very much me and Catty. I met Catty, and Catty had just retired from rhythmic gymnastics in her early 20s. And so she had this joy of throwing things and doing, manipulating things, and didn't know where to go in life at that point. So when we met, she learned to juggle from myself and various other street performers. And then because she, she came from a dance aesthetic, we started going to dance classes and thinking, well, can we make things that are different? And it, I guess we've never stopped since. And what was the first launching? What was the first production you guys put together? We had a little duet called Shifting Spheres, which is a terrible name. <laughs> and we had some quite experimental music and we did some stuff at Circus Space, which was the circus school in London. And then there's a wonderful woman called Jill Clark, who, who was a, a contemporary dancer, who was a beautiful, beautiful dancer. And I asked her whether she would help us. And at the time, there's, there was somebody called Mike Day, who was one of the the discoverers of Sight Swap, and he actually lives in Los Angeles now. We roped him in, and we were a trio at that time, and we made this first piece that was called Neither, Either, Both, And. It was quite controversial at the time. I mean, it was really quite experimental and quite different from anything that was in juggling at that point. And I remember performing it at a few juggling conventions in the UK, and people just going, what the hell is this? Well, I, they, they was just not a bridge of understanding, which I think now there is. I think if somebody presented that kind of work now, it would be more accessible. But that, yeah, that's how we started. And then for, for the first six or seven, we worked with Jill and we produced a series of work, which I still think are quite dark. And I think you saw one of them towards the end. They were, they were very structured and deconstructed and in a way went against the classic aesthetic of juggling, which is 
to build the sensational side of juggling. So we would often pull a trick before it, it had got to its big part or start something and not finish it and reverse it, take it back, repeat it more times. It was that, those kind of things. Yeah, I remember seeing you and the word that would come to my mind was challenging. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, but I think also, at the, I mean, there was many things about those early pieces. I think that they were difficult in that the structure of the juggling was difficult, the structure of the movement was difficult, and the music was difficult. I don't think we were intentionally trying to make things that were impenetrable or unfathomable, but I think the world we were in was dealing with those kind of things. And when I look back on some of those pieces, we put a lot of time and they were very crafted. I think in our later work, we've made bridges or, or windows into the pieces that make it easier to digest. And because I feel like if you bring people in in an easier way, it, then you can take them to these wonderful, complex places. Yeah, I remember the thing I always thought was like, I always thought, what strange music choices. <laughs> well, it was the music we were listening to. And at the time, we were very influenced by people like uh, Merce Cunningham and John Cage, who were using very experimental music. I mean, I grew up listening to, to very experimental music. So to me, those music choices weren't. I think because I was always surrounded by that kind of music, I didn't think or understand that people found it so difficult or that they found those soundscapes so alienating. And then you mentioned side swaps. When did they come into your work? <laughs> Actually, well, the, I had a wonderful conversation with and somebody who I, I would suggest you chat to, somebody called Denis Pommier, who runs a wonderful company in France, Les Objets Volants. And Denis was saying that he thought that maybe we were the first to use sight swaps in a, in a score kind of way as a performative thing. But we, um, when I was doing shows in Covent Garden, I wasn't aware of sight swaps. And when I met Mike Day, who I had met before, but I re-met him, Mike Day introduced me, and this would have been late 80s. So a few years after they were discovered or, or found or whatever one wants to say. And for a few years, they formed a kind of backbone to the work we did. They were a, a notational tool. I would say in, in the last few years, they've become one tool of many. So I wouldn't say that we make, we've made whole pieces that maybe don't use SiteSwap as the main generative tool. But they're there as something that I find immensely useful. They're a bit like our music notation. So you can, you can be a jazz musician and play fantastic music without reading scores, but the scores are there and it, they open the door to, these, to this incredible amount of patterns. And was that sort of the basis? The one piece I remember hearing about early on was this clapping music. So we, we've done two things to clapping music. In our very first piece, neither, either, both, and we had a, an interpretation of clapping music where Mike Day would actually clap clapping music against the recording because clapping music needs two, two clappers. So he would have one recording of uh, the basic clapping music is. And then Mike Day would shift it on that. And we would move 12 balls from the back of the stage to the front of the stage. So it was almost more dance than juggling and then we have a youtube clip which is we actually play clapping music with with ball bouncing balls so we actually do the steve reich piece and we've done quite a lot of research into the sound of juggling we there's a, a wonderful composer called tom johnson who's of the same generation of steve reich and philip glass who's composed some pieces 
for us. And he's very minimal. So he likes this idea of uh, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. And it goes on a long time and it takes you to this place where, according to him, you, you start hearing things in a different way. It's almost like a simple, not as simple as a wrong word, but a minimal version, a mi minimal vision of sound. But that's where clapping music comes in. And yeah. And I went through the list of your shows and I'm going to kind of go out of order. But there were definitely some that intrigued me either because of the people in them or because of the names. So let me just go through a few and then maybe you give me your thoughts on the ones I mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> so the first one that really caught my eye was a show called Remembering Rastelli. Oh, gosh. Well, Remembering Rastelli, we did. And you mentioned Jay Gilligan at the beginning, and Jay Gilligan was in that. And that was the last piece that we made with Jill Clark. We made some other things. And in a complicated way, quoting uh, the life of Enrico Rastelli and juxtaposing it over the idea of the rise of Mussolini and fascism. It was an early experiment in dramatic things. For my money, the, the dramatic side, I wasn't so happy with, but it, it had a section of ball duets and trios, which I'm really fond of. And a lot of those ball duets and trios I have reused in various forms since. And it had a, a ring, a ring routine. We keep making these ring routines. I, I feel like we, I'm trying to make this the perfect ring group ring routine and, and this I keep remaking different things but it had a ring routine that appeared twice a lot of the, the routines appeared twice in this show and slightly mutated yeah and how important is sort of the history of juggling like I'm sure that you know these names I mean, we mentioned the Shinkavelli in our talk before the yeah how important was history to you of juggling to me a history of juggling I'm absolutely fascinated by it and I would want this not to sound presumptuous, although when one says not sound presumptuous, inevitably, uh, <laughs> I, I don't feel like I come from there. I don't feel like that's where I grew up. I, I feel like I grew, I grew up in dance and the, and the history I relate to is to do with the think, structural thinking, which didn't exist very much in juggling when we started. And these days, there's a beautiful proliferation of it. But so to me, the history of juggling it is rich and fantastic but it doesn't feel to me like the place I come from, where we come from. Does that make sense? No, no, very much, because like I say, you were definitely more influenced by sort of the modern dance and this idea of, of juggling as its own artistic expression. Yes. And in America, that was not, I mean, I grew up with Albert Lucas. Yeah. Dick Franco. Yeah. And those are the guys we saw as like these very, we would go to Vegas when I was like a, a teenager, we'd have to do a road trip. And that's what we would see. We'd see Chris Cremo and, and Peter, and uh, of course, Peter Davison was very influential yeah, they, well, well, actually, Air, Air Jazz and Michael Motion definitely uh, were playing with structure mm -hmm. around a similar time. So, so there was an element of that. And the people you mentioned, I, I love all of that stuff. I mean, to me, it, in a way, it's a, for me, it, sometimes it's like watching a good ventriloquist or a good magician. It's stuff which I love, but I don't feel like I'm in the same world. I sometimes wish I was, but <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. I think air jazz was before their time because they came out of the blue and then nobody like followed them. Mm, yes. Although, I mean, I, I do think Gilli Gilligan somehow co connects with that. And, mm -hmm. and I, I don't know if he considered, I mean, he, he is American and, and in a way, a lot of what the youngsters in Stockholm are doing is connected with him and his teachings. So there is an American connection to the whole contemporary juggling renaissance or 
But when he left, though, he, he left America to sort of find himself. But then so many, of the, so many of the innovative American artists did leave. I mean, all the big jazz people left. And Merce Cunningham wouldn't have survived if it wasn't for France in the 70s and 80s. So I think even though there's so much great American contemporary art across the, the spectrum of the arts, probably wouldn't have survived without the European help and, uh, and financial influence. Now, uh, one other routine that, or, or show that intrigued me, and you said before that we talked, this was one of your more commercial experimentations, was a show called The Racketeers. I love The Racketeers. The Racketeers was a friend of ours called Roger Robertson, who's an agent who runs an agency called Acrobat Productions. And he used to hire us to do commercial, because for, for a while, before we, I think we got lucky with, with a show called Smash, but we can talk about that later. But for a while, the way for us to fund artistic follies was to do commercial work. And we realized that we were reasonably good jugglers, so we could launch cars or put together three-minute routines or four-minute routines. But Roger came up with this idea of a kind of Harlem Globetrotters, but with tennis rackets. So we put together this rock and roll six-person tennis racket juggling act, which we did at a few big tennis tournaments. And uh, I think it was a good idea. I think, unfortunately, some of the tennis world is really conservative and wasn't having it. Whereas, uh, but I, I, it, it was a great idea and I, it was a fun act to do for a while. And here's a name that I thought had a lot of humor. I don't know how, where you <laughs> find humor, uh, plays, where place it, it uh, has in your work. But the show is called Stop Breaking My Balls. Well, that show for us, that was a duet for, for Cathy and I. And, and that was a big departure with, for, I'd say, for the first maybe decade, we made work which was really formalist. It was to do with the structure of juggling and taking it apart and, and dealing it with as if it was dance or painting. And at a certain point, we thought we opened the door to theatre and stopped breaking my balls. And it did have some comedy. I mean, ironically, believe it or not, we have made some, some comedy stuff. But, but Stop Breaking My Balls was a little bit my relationship with Catty put on stage. And, uh, and it was directed by uh, John Paul Zaccarini, who now, now lives in Stockholm as well. And it was, it was the opening the door to narrative. I think we were very uh, pragmatist for a while. And I think at that point we kind of went, no, wait a minute, we can, we can do all of it. We can open the door to whatever we want. It doesn't have to be this hermetically sealed environment where we don't let other things in. From then on, it feels like the work has been open to all manner of outside influences. Well, one piece that definitely was influenced by the modern technology of juggling is that your, your Mozart glow club piece because that was shared a lot here in the states yes we we did that quite a lot for a while and we still do it did actually that was a little bit like a dessert we made that we wanted like to make something that was really uh, you were talking earlier about experimental music and all of that and we thought well, why don't we do the opposite why don't we take something that's just a beautiful piece of music and really use mathematical notation to choreograph it and track the club so it's all it's completely scored and and every club is numbered and tracked throughout to me it's a very commercial routine and yet when it used to get booked like Roncalli Circus would book it and places like that it would get booked as the kind of artistic act in an evening of uh, entertainment. But to, to me, that was, that was us being commercial. What have you seen in the development as far as the technology of the club? Was that something that 
you felt what like when the technology was there, it was time to put that piece together. Yes, I would say that's I, we didn't we didn't develop it at all. The, uh, it's uh, Aerotech clubs, which which are these phenomenal programmable uh, juggling clubs, I, and it's interesting. There's been a proliferation of other programmable juggling equipment and it feels like one hasn't found the ultimate standard i guess the market is quite small and earlier we were comparing jugglers and magicians and jugglers tend to be quite stingy so mm. if, if you sell them a 300 dollar club uh, a lot of them will say oh that's too much um whereas magicians will go that's a cheap thing i'll buy it <laughs> uh, now there's another show that i i love this quote they had for it hold on one sec yeah. I have a dog here scratching to get in. Is there a dog? That's good. I need a dog. Yeah, I have. It's funny. I have two. Uh, of course, as soon as I opened the door, she decided that she didn't want to come in. <laughs> but I have two dachshunds, and their names are Francis and Lottie. <laughs> That's very sweet. I'm jealous. We traveled so much, but we'd love a pet. We need a pet. Yeah, I talked to Michael Chirik about that. Obviously, he knew they were a tribute. They weren't, you know, trying to, <laughs> you know, in any way <laughs> infer anything negative. That I just. I love Lottie and Francis Brun, so it was uh, two little German uh, dogs, you know, two kind of little German jugglers, <laughs> so it was definitely an attribute. I had a good conversation with him about, actually about Bob Dylan recently. Just, Michael yeah. Chirik? Yeah, I had a good Bob Dylan conversation with him. I love Michael Chirik because Michael Chirik is show business. Yeah, it's true, it's true. Again, I, the, the, somebody else that's on a different part of the spectrum, and yet I think, I think at the end of the day it is all the same thing. It's, yeah. Well, I think I if you look at like, if you look at show business, like we just did a show in uh, in Palm Springs, which I know you're going to LA. I suggested you visit Palm Springs. Yeah, but it was this show called "The Tribute to the Follies," and uh -huh. they had these old time performers, like this fellow. His name was uh, Tony Sandler, and he used to work with a duo called Sandler and Young, like one of these singing uh -huh. comedy duos. And he was 82. And there was a tap dancer on the show who was 93. Fantastic. fantastic. And uh, Pete Barbuti, who was a, a pretty well-known comedian from like the 60s and 70s on the Johnny Carson show. And it just seems like when you're in show business, no matter what your age or what you're exact, whether you're a dog act or a ventriloquist or this kind of juggler or that kind of juggler, there's definitely a bond that exists in show business. Yes, I yes, absolutely. And at, at the end of the day, it is all the same thing. I mean, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Now, this funny thing I was going to mention before was that I love this quote that you that you had in, for one of your shows, and the quote was, "It's a brave show for brave audiences." Gosh, I think that's a clowns and queens yep. quote, isn't it? Yeah, we made a piece called Smashed, which. We made in a week, and we made it as a tribute to this amazing German theatre director and choreographer called Pina Bausch. And we didn't think that we would play this show a lot. And we made it for nine jugglers. And, and at the end of the piece, we broke everything. It, all the apples, it has 100 apples. And this show has ended up being a bit of a phenomenon. And it just tours constantly around the world. And something I thought was quite experimental, bizarrely, has ended up being quite a funny piece and quite a... But after that, some of the, the, the intentions I had in Smash, the, some of the serious intentions came out as comedy, which I guess is quite a nice accident. And so I thought of making something that was harsher, that explored those same ideas, as certain ideas of sexuality or what one is looking... The, what, what is the thrill that one is looking at when one is looking at circus in, in a more analytical way. And so I think we were successful in making something that was quite divisive in its view. And 
it, it, what I, I, we were talking about earlier of Europe having this new circus touring, but the new circus touring in Europe is still looking at circus as the cuddly art form. So whereas they'll program dance or theater that's dealing with some harsh issues, love, death and, and everything, they don't often expect circus to be dealing with those things. So, so it was interesting. And actually I have a lot of fondness for the show, even though when people are offered the two or three shows that we have, there's only a few brave programmers which do pick clowns and queens. And But we, we're doing it in Strasbourg in, in about a month. And I think, sadly, it might be its last shows because we're going to put it away for a bit. Now, I've mentioned quite a few of your shows. Obviously, you have, you have many more. Are there any other ones that you... Like you had one called The Big Water Juggle where you had one of the, the quotes or one of the credits is young performers. It was a community project. So we involved some youngsters that then have grown up to be wonderful jugglers. And ironically, some of them, like John Audrey, came to work with us afterwards. Um, but actually, if I had to talk about a show, we have a touring show at the moment called 4x4 Ephemeral Architectures, which combines classical ballet and juggling. And, it, uh, and it's a show we tour quite a lot. And to me, I'm, I'm very fond of it because... It looks at juggling through the lens of, of the classical arts. And it's something that I've wanted to do for a while. And it questions a little bit the notion of beauty and is juggling beautiful? Is it a beautiful thing per se? And if so, what is its classicism? I'm very fond of that. And then we're working on a new piece which digs deeper and in a way goes back a little bit to our roots, our choreographic roots that's going to look at this time is going to have seven jugglers and three dancers and we're hoping to collaborate with the extraordinary water on mars uh, performers from stockholm who we've been doing a few bits and bobs with you said you were producing a show for wes peden tony pezzo and patrick elmert yeah and, to and young tony pezzo what we are helped because i'm extremely fond of the work they're doing i i really feel like it's some of the most exciting juggling that's ever been made and if in a way we can help that be seen by an audience that's a non-juggling audience that would be really fantastic so our office is helping produce their show in edinburgh this year and but we are collaborating with them on on this next piece that's going to be called spring that premieres in 2018 and we're working with an extraordinary english choreographer that i'm very keen on and um I'm very exciting to see what our two worlds together can can produce. Well, if anybody's carrying juggling into the next generation, uh, passed from our era of the or my era of the of the dinosaurs, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's it's these uh, this obviously more, but this trio of Wes, Tony, and Patrick are are fantastic. They are doing beautiful work. There's a fair amount. There's a lot of beautiful work being made in juggling and, uh, at the moment. In Europe, I would say there's at least 10 companies making, making interesting, very interesting work. The landscape of contemporary juggling has really changed in the last decade. Whereas maybe 10, 15 years ago, there was two or three of us. Now, I mean, on the larger scale, there's not so many people, but people crafting and making this really... Quite a lot. I mean, in Paris every year, there's a festival of contemporary juggling that, that has six or seven shows every year that are different and that make us seem like mainstream performers. And um, mm. it's, uh, it's quite a thriving scene. But I do agree with you that the, the three of them are making rather beautiful work. And actually what struck, struck me when I saw it recently was that was actually its beauty and, it, and its concern with structure which is always when I was talking to you about when we started and, and the thing that preoccupied us about 
juggling was this sense of its structure and how one could recombine it in different ways. And I feel like they have been very successful at rethinking it and rethinking it on a very primal level, like even just on a tricks level. Um, yeah. Oh, they're super strong. I saw recently uh, a duet with Wes and Patrick, and they did the whole first half of a show in uh, the Israeli Juggling Festival. And I was very impressed by the cleanliness of the technique and the, mm. I think they dropped once or twice in 45 minutes, which was... Mm. Yes, I've seen that. It's a beautiful piece. Well, that piece is, is really very, very structural. It's, yeah, it's, it's great work. I, it makes me very happy that, that this work is finally, for a while, I mean, way back, I thought we were banging our head against the walls, a few of us that were doing this stuff. And so the fact that it's all opened but then again from the conversation we're having it feels like it's open in certain parts of the world and i feel like there's an aspect of contemporary circus which hasn't yet spread across the usa and inevitably it will it will come yeah well we're coming to the end of our time so we do like kind of a rapid fire because there's a couple more topics i wanted to get to a couple more names yeah uh, so i'm just going to give a name out and you just give me your thoughts and, and yeah uh, so the peapot jugglers that's Maxim and uh, Villa Walu. Yeah, and and again, I think they were very, very. I think they were very influential in in a certain area of juggling at a certain time. I, I was doing other things when that was all happening, so I didn't completely follow. But I think that in a way, they they were catalysts for the Wesses and the Tonys and the Patricks and that whole generation. I'm forgetting a lot of people. It's not just the three of them. There's many wonderful young jugglers. Yeah, they hit America at a certain time where it was just like it was definitely a breath of fresh air. But then they came to the IJA, and they were a bit, a bit ahead of us, I think, artistically. Uh, but there's a history, isn't it, of people turning up at the IJA and the IJA going, oh, oh don't understand this European stuff. <laughs> My friend Vincent, who sadly also passed away, he, he was there, I think, the year we were there at Niagara. And I remember them being in the public show, and it was a beautiful routine. And, and like you say, I think it was lost in translation. Yes, we also had... Uh... Was it Jerome Thomas? Is that how you say that? Uh, yeah. You see, Jerome Thomas in France is God. He, <laughs> when I was talking about Michael Motion earlier, uh -huh. in a way, Jerome is what Michael Motion would have been if he'd been in France. I mean, Michael Motion is this great figure, obviously. I'm not. But Jerome has a respect within French culture that's probably unheard of of any other juggler within a cultural context. But but yes, I think when he came to the to the IJA, he wasn't, he was lost in translation a little bit as well. But there are definitely names I think that it's important for, for jugglers to know and to remember. And one name that comes to mind is Luke Wilson. I know he was one of your, your performers. Yes, well, he was, well, Luke was a, a beautiful soloist and duetist and uh, uh, Luke was an extraordinary juggler and a great thinker who sadly died uh, too young as a lot of great people do. But I, I taught Luke when, I must have been 95, 96. I could, get, I could be getting my years wrong. And he was a great structuralist as well. And he did a lot of very interesting work with Jay Gilligan and with Ben Richter exploring this idea of juggling a structure. And actually, for me, it's somebody I miss a lot because it's somebody that, who also was on the bridge between juggling and uh, magic. And somebody I used to consult a lot about ideas. Yeah, I think he left too soon. I think he was going to do many great and interesting things. But he's, he left some very beautiful routines. Well, it's like you and me. I remember having a really wonderful conversation with him. And we definitely were coming from two 
different places. But for both of us, the love of juggling was so strong that we had a really strong bond. Because even though we weren't on the same page, we were both reading the same book. That makes a lot of sense. That's um, a, good, a good conclusive thought, if, um, if ever there was one. Let's have one more conclusive thought. If you wanted to leave our <laughs> listeners with one sort of idea about juggling or your feelings about juggling and the future of juggling or where you want to go or where you want juggling to go, what would you want to tell them? No, well, what you were saying earlier about our age and where we, I mean, you know, I feel like I'm just starting. I feel like there's so much to be done. I feel like it's, it's a beautiful, very rich art form. And a lot has been done, but there's still so much to be done. So it's, it's an exciting time to be in juggling. And I wrote this a, f a few years ago that I feel like we're in the golden age of juggling because the whole spectrum from comedy juggling to sports juggling to artistic juggling, whatever you want to call it, is being explored and torn apart. And there's all these fantastic virtuosic kids coming along and trying things. Um, inevitably, there's an element of emperor's new clothes, as there is in anything. But I really do think we're in the golden age of juggling. Well, thank, thank you so much, Sean. This was a really a delightful conversation on this podcast. And I really enjoyed it. I, I love the way you think about juggling. And I look, really look forward to seeing what you're going to do in the future, since you're just, you're just starting out. I'm just starting. Thank you, Dan. It was a pleasure. And we'll meet in the real world soon. Once again, a big thanks to Sean Gandini. Thanks, Dan. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 30, my conversation with the amazing Sean Gandini. And he really is amazing because he's a, a fellow who's carved out his own journey through the world of juggling, and I always appreciate that. Uh, thanks so much to Sean Gandini for taking the time out from his busy career and busy life to talk with us. And also thank you, the listeners of Drop Everything, for supporting this podcast. What would really be a big support if you were to go to iTunes Leave a review in one of those five-star ratings. We need more ratings. We need more reviews. We need more people listening to Drop Everything to support the wonderful world of juggling. And thinking about support and talking about support, let's thank our main sponsor, the IJA. I'm sure by now you realize that stands for International Jugglers Association. I've been a member of the IJA since 1980. And I've always enjoyed my time at the annual conventions, the magazine, the online presence, their shop. There's so much involved with the IIGA to get excited about, but especially this year's festival in El Paso, Texas, where you can come out and see me, Dan Holzman, the machine, MC the Welcome Show. So if you come out just for that, then the money will be well spent because uh, I'm amazing. Uh, speaking about amazing, you know who's really amazing is my wife, Karen Holzman. She does all the engineering and she does all the real work for this podcast. So my hat tips in the direction of my wife, Karen Holzman. And thank you so much for listening. Thanks to the IJA. Thanks to BrainDrizzles.com, my personal coaching website. And most of all, thanks to you, the listeners. And remember, drop everything except when you're juggling.